0: It was a a heroic effort, an amazing rescue. These 12 boys trapped in this cave for two weeks, cut off from their families, cut off from their communities, the water rising, the darkness, the oxygen being depleted, and volunteers from all over the world came together and battled great odds and rescued them. One, of course, gave his life in the effort. Prayers and hope abounded for these young people. I prayed for them. I suspect you did as well. The goal, of course, was to restore them to their families, to bring them to safety, to give them back to their loved ones. And we all rejoiced when they were safe and sound. It was a rare moment of global oneness, a glorious glimpse of humanity at our best. What happened there in Thailand over those two weeks in the rescue of those boys was a sign of what can happen, of what should happen. But unfortunately, all too often doesn't happen. It's quite different than what happened on our southern border. There, children separated from parents not by a misplaced sense of adventure, but by something darker, something more primitive. You see, for all of our higher aspirations, we human beings are beset by a most perplexing contradiction. On the one hand, we are completely dependent upon one another. But on the other hand, we are so suspicious and distrustful of one another. We are at the same time drawn to each other and repelled by each other. We need each other. We acknowledge that we need to live and work together. And we are so put off by our So that the hardest thing that any of us will ever do is to get along with those with whom we disagree. Read our history. It is the story of conflict and violence writ large. Mark Twain realized this, and he spoke of it in his letters from the earth. He said, In truth, man is incurably foolish. Simple things which other animals easily learn, he is incapable of learning. Among my experiments was this In an hour, I taught a dog and a cat to be friends. I put them in a cage. In another hour, I taught them to be friends with a rabbit. In the course of two days, I was able to add a fox. A goose, a squirrel, and some doves. And then finally, a monkey. They live together in peace, even affectionately. Next, in another cage, I confined an Irish Catholic from Tipperary. And as soon as he seemed tame, I added a Scotch Presbyterian from Aberdeen. Next, a Turk from Constantinople, a Greek Greek Christian from Crete, an Armenian, a Methodist from the wilds of Arkansas, a Buddhist from China, a Brahmin from Benares, and finally, a Salvation Army colonel from Wapping. Then I stayed away for two days, and when I came back to note the results, the cage of the lower animals was all right, but in the other cage, there was nothing but a chaos of gory odds and ends, of turbans and fezes and plaids and bones and flesh, not a single specimen left alive. These animals with higher reasoning had disagreed on a theological point and had carried the matter to a higher court. Bring up the matter of not getting along, and inevitably you must bring up the matter of religion. Again, Mark Twain said, man is a religious animal. He is the only religious animal. He is the only animal that has the true religion, several of them. The irony, of course, is each of these several true religions would claim to have the power to unite people, to bring people together. E.O. Wilson, a twice-awarded Pulitzer Prize winner from Mobile, Alabama, contends that religion originated in tribalism. According to Wilson, religion, like everything else associated with life, is an evolutionary adaptation. And he says that religion rose out of the need to bind a group of people by something they held in common. And thus we have religion. Now you may or may not agree with E.O. Wilson. But we must admit that for all of its noble aspirations, religion has a hard time sustaining any commonality greater than tribalism or nationalism, or conservatism, or liberalism, or any one of the multitude of other isms by which we human beings clump ourselves into competing factions. We just seem to be destined to disagree. And religion so far hasn't been able to do a whole lot about it. I think of all the denominations within the Christian church, there are thousands of us, different denominations, and they are, in a sense, our tribes. And then even within denominations, there are differences, and we Methodists are embroiled in divisive issues. Richard referred to one of those a few moments ago. You'll hear more about that in the coming months and years. We will talk about it when we have something really to talk about. At this point, we don't have anything except speculation. And there's no need to discuss speculation, I don't think. But suffice it to say, we are divided as a church into our tribes. This group accusing that group and writing vociferous Articles of disagreement. And where is our oneness? And then we hear the Pauline writers proclaim that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And a part of us hears that and thinks, yes, there is one true religion and we've got it. But then another part of us hears that and thinks, surely there is more to it than that. And so we listen more carefully and we hear the appeal. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beg you, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience and Bearing one another in love and making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Seems to me that the apostle is not proclaiming the exclusivity of our faith, but its radical inclusiveness. He is begging us, begging us, To live into the mystery of our calling. He is begging us to live up to the possibilities that are in the one who calls us. The way forward is not us against them, the way forward is the bond of peace. Forged in the unity of the Spirit, manifested in humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance in love. And the Apostle says we are to make every effort to maintain this. And the effort we are called to make is more than our striving and our will and our strength. It is the acceptance of the, of the, of the reality that there is one God who is Father of us all. It is to submit to grace. It is to surrender every part of ourselves to the love of God. It is no longer striving to prove ourselves to others or against others. It is an effort in the sense that God's energy is poured into us and enables us to pull through all of those impulses and powers that would tear us apart. You see, the one of our oneness is not something we hold. It is the one who holds us and who holds every other person in the forbearance of love, with gentleness, and with patience and most amazing of all the God who is beyond all and who is in all and through all holds us with humility and so we hear Jesus say I am the bread of life Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Jesus says this first to the Jewish people of his day, and hunger and thirst figure large in their sense of themselves as a people. It was to their ancestors that God gave water and manna in the wilderness. And that water and that manna were essential to their survival both physically and spiritually. It enabled them to keep going toward the promised land in the strength of that, in the nourishment of that. But it also was a sign that they were called, that they were chosen, that they were God's people. And those Jews of Jesus, they still want to know that. They understand themselves as the descendants of the chosen people. And so when they say to Jesus, Our ancestors ate bread in the wilderness, and and they say to him, Give us this bread always, they are asking for sign that they are still God's people, that he is their Messiah, and that they are God's people. They are hoping for assurance that they are still set apart as a special people, just as their ancestors were. Deeper than this is their prayer for survival. You see, these people are living on the edge of extinction. They fear, they know that at any moment they can be swallowed up by a nation much bigger and stronger than themselves. And so when Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never hunger, whoever believes in me will never thirst, he is affirming them, he is reassuring them. He is reassuring them that their survival need not be in question. They are God's people. And God will feed them as surely as God fed their ancestors. Moreover, Jesus is breaking down the walls that divide them from others. He is throwing open the doors to grace. He is pushing the boundary out as far as he can so that whoever will may come. Whoever, Jesus says, comes to me. They and their neighbors and their enemies and anyone else may come. And in that there is oneness. Sisters and brothers, our world and our country and even our church are beset by painful and destructive divisions. there's no no denying it the hardest thing we will ever have to do mark it down the hardest thing we will ever have to do is to get along with those who are not like us and so we increasingly we are openly hostile and we're most often hostile to people we don't know, about whom we know the least. And at the bottom of this hostility is this primitive urge, this, this, this primal fear of the other. We are afraid that we and those like us may not survive. And so we take our positions, we go to our tribes. We shouldn't be surprised that this happens. It is the lost sight of our humanity. And the one Lord who is the God and Father of us all still seeks to bring us into the essential oneness of the divine life. And Jesus says to those who would follow him, by this we'll all know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. What a witness it would be if our church, the United Methodist Church, could rise above our differences and show the world how to get along in those differences. I must applaud our Bishop David Graves. He made a very wise tactical move at our recent annual conference, and Richard referred to this a few moments ago. We did not debate the contentious issue. We did not have floor speeches where The usual loud voices were the ones that were heard, the only ones heard. We did not take a vote. There were no winners and losers. Instead, we met in small groups, and every single person there had the opportunity to speak. Every one of us, more than a thousand delegates, had the opportunity to speak. And we listened to one another. We listened with deep respect and kindness. And it was a holy thing. This is what it can be. This is what it should be. And I pray that it will be that we will learn to hear each other. And that we will make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons different and yet one in the bond of peace. And I pray that we will do that with patience, with humility, with gentleness. We sing a hymn about the oneness of the church. And the hymn is just a wonderful hymn, O Church of God United. 547 is the number. This is an opportunity for us to affirm grace, to receive the Spirit, and to be the people God has made us to be. Let us stand and sing.